what, uh, what I'm going to try and do today, <clears throat> we'll see if it works, is part three of a series that didn't start out as a series but ended up one, which is um, <clears throat> the comings and goings of Jesus. Um, I already did a part one and a part two. Part one was during Resurrection Sunday week in which I went through the three uh, comings of Jesus that were related to that weekend and the one going of Jesus that was related to that weekend. Part two was the famous comings of Jesus, his first coming and his second coming uh, at the beginning and at the very end. And so what's left? Well, what's left is in between the earthly ministry of Jesus, the comings and goings of Jesus while he was here on earth in his incarnation. And in each case, what I've been focusing on is the purposes for the comings and goings. And we had something like 22 purposes the first week, and we had something like 20 purposes the second week, and we're going to break the record today. Um, I won't tell you how many, and then at the end, you'll see if you can figure it out. So, um, <clears throat> why am I doing this? <laughs> this is a question I've dealt with each time, and this isn't working. Jason, this isn't working. <laughs> Oh, it is working. I can't see it back there, though. So that's going to be an interesting thing. All right. <laughs> so why are we doing this? There's several reasons, one, one of which is I'd ask you to look uh, quickly. By the way, we're not going to be doing a sword drill today like I often do with you and make you jump all over creation. We're going to be staying pretty much in one book, except for right now, and then at the very end. Uh, right now and at the very end, we're going outside of the book of Matthew. Otherwise, we're going to be in Matthew. So in Acts chapter 1, in verse 21, when they, when they were looking to replace Judas uh, and needed a 12th apostle, uh, there were certain criteria that were listed for who was eligible to become an apostle. And in verse 21, it says, it is therefore necessary, necessary, that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. This was a requirement to be an apostle. And I want all of you to be able to be apostles. Wait, no, that's not it. Um, but obviously, this is something that was important. They, they wanted someone as an apostle who knew all about Jesus' earthly ministry. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, and so that's a, that's a why reason. And another reason is just simply as an overview of the life of Christ, which we are heading up to uh, Christmas season, the celebration of the incarnation of Jesus. It's a good time to review what he did when he was here. Um, we, we focus all of, all of our attention during Christmas on his coming, which is good, but uh, then it's sometimes good to remind ourselves what he did then once he was here. And so we're going to do sort of an overview of the life of Christ in the book of Matthew. So I'd encourage you to go to the book of Matthew. Sojourners is an Old Testament fellowship group, so I'm asking you to go to Matthew. <laughs> and again, the, the, the focus is on why he went to various places. Um, though it won't be comprehensive... Uh, I, I whittled it down to some critical thing purposes, but um, what I want you to think about is the fact that Jesus, when he was on the earth and was walking around and so forth, he wasn't wandering. It wasn't random. He wasn't just kind of wandering around and then he bumped into things and so on and so forth, but he had purposes for what he was doing. Uh, and so that's what we're going to focus on Today. Is that turned on? Not working. Yeah, I know it's not working. It's just... <laughs> All right. So look with me at, at the book of Matthew, and we're going to begin our march through Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, and we're going to start, uh, you, you always should start at the beginning, so we're going to skip to chapter 2. 
And um, look at chapter 2 and verse 14. And he, that is Joseph, arose and took the child, that is Jesus, and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. So from what I can tell, this is the first going of Jesus in his earthly ministry. He goes to Egypt, taken by his parents. And why does he do that? And for that we see verse 15. He was there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by of the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. So he went to Egypt, this first going, to fulfill prophecy. Now go down to verse 23 of chapter 2. And then he came and resided in a city called Nazareth. Why did he do that? What was the purpose? That what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So this again, his purpose here is to fulfill prophecy. He's the branch man from the Old Testament that it was prophesied. So let's go to chapter 3, and Jesus is now an adult, and he's making his own choices on where he goes, as opposed to being taken by his parents. In chapter 3, and verse 13, it says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. And there we see why he went there, to be baptized by John. But people then wonder, you might wonder, and people at the time wondered, why would he go to be baptized? After all, he is Jesus, right? Why does he need to be baptized? Um, and um, John asks him, why are you here? Look at verse 14. John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He did it to be obedient, to be the righteous one, the one who was obedient in all things. That's how you become righteous. You're not just innocent. A baby is innocent, but a righteous person is one who is obedient in all things, who conquers, who overcomes, to use uh, the uh, terminology in the book of Revelation. So he came to be obedient and righteous, and so that required baptism. We go then to chapter 4, in verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. Why did he do that? Verse 14, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And then it gives the prophecy. So again, he did this. He moved to Capernaum to fulfill prophecy. He fulfills dozens and dozens of prophecies. And these are some of them. Uh, then we go to chapter 5. And it says there, Verse 1, when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. So why did he go up on the mountain? And those of you who have been in Sunday school most of your lives know why he went up on the mountain. He went up to teach the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and it, the title, Sermon on the Mount, wouldn't have been nearly as effective if he wasn't on a mount. That's just my interpretation. So he goes up to teach, basically, in this case, the Sermon on the Mount. And that takes us through the next few chapters, and then we go to chapter 8 and verse 1, in which he leaves the mount. In fact, 8.1 tells us this, and when he had come down from the mountain, there you go, this is a coming, down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and what did he come down from the mountain to do? Verse 2, And behold, a leper came to him and bowed down to him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And stretching out his hand, he touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So one of the things he came down to do was to heal a leper, but I want to emphasize something else. He came down to touch a leper. To touch a leper. Um, 
This person had probably not been touched for many moons, many years. Imagine if no one had touched you for that a period of time. And so I think it's important that he had touched the leper, the untouchable one. This is part of Jesus' ministry. And so he doesn't just heal him from a distance and zap him and say, you're healed, but he does it with personality. All right, so he touches and heals the leper. And then if you go on in chapter 8, you see what else he does in this particular location, which is heal someone else, the centurion's servant. Um, Now, that one's done remotely. Um, One of the first remote control, no. Uh, That one's done remotely, but not because Jesus wasn't personal, but because the centurion said, you don't need to come. I have faith. You can do it from a distance. And so it's to demonstrate that faith that the centurion had. All right, that takes us further into chapter 8 to verse 14 when he goes somewhere else. In verse 14, when Jesus had come to Peter's home, So now he travels to Peter's home, and what does he do there? Once again, he heals. He heals Peter's mother, and then verse 17 tells us that this was done in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So he comes to heal and to fulfill prophecy. All right, so we should be getting a pattern here in these early uh, movements of Jesus. He is fulfilling prophecy, and he is healing people, okay? You, can see, you see that over and over again in, this, this early, in the early parts of the book of Matthew, all right? Uh, then we move farther into chapter 8 to verse 28, in which he moves somewhere else. Verse 28, when he had come to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes. So he, he moves to the country of the Gadarenes. And what does he do there? This is where the demons confront him, and he shows his power over demons. He has two purposes that I can see in in this location. One is to show his power over demons, which is pretty important. The other is to be rejected. And there are multiple times where Jesus goes somewhere to be rejected. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to hit a couple others along the way, but this is important to note because this is also showing that although he is the Messiah, not everybody is going to believe in him, and although he is still the Messiah, not everybody believes in him today either. And so no matter what they see, no matter what he does, and they actually reject him because they see him ha- with power over the demons, and, they're, and they say, would you please leave our town? It's an amazing thing. All right, so let's move on to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. So now he comes to his own city in chapter 9. And what does he do there? Look at verse 2. Behold, they are bringing to him a paralytic. Oh, he's healing people? That's a shock. Um, they brought, they uh, were bringing to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and Jesus, seeing their face, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, You are healed. He says, Your sins are forgiven. So he comes here to show that he has authority to forgive sins. He's already shown he has authority over demons. Now he shows that he has authority to forgive sins. And we're starting to get some type of revelation that he could be maybe God, right? Only God has authority to forgive sins. And so uh, this is an important purpose for this particular location. Then later in chapter 9, verse 9, And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Purpose there? To choose Matthew as one of his disciples. Uh, and I don't know how Matthew knew about this event to write it. Oh, wait, because it was him. Um, so he goes there to choose his disciple, Matthew. 
Then later in chapter 9, verse 23, and when Jesus came into the official's house, am I keeping up? Okay. When Jesus came into the official's house, um, here he comes to a house in which a young, young girl has died. And so he goes here to show his power over death. So again, we've got a flow here again now, showing his power, showing his power over demons, showing his authority to forgive sins, and now showing his power over death as he raises her from the dead. Then we move to uh, chapter 12. And by the way, there's uh, teaching and whatnot going on in between. We go to chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields. So here's the, the next going of Jesus. He goes through the grain fields. And the disciples become hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. Um, now, the problem here, of course, is, for those of you who remember your flannel graph stories, that this is the Sabbath, all right? And his disciples do work. They pick grain. Uh, and uh, so he does this according to verse 8. What Jesus says is his purpose here, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We're in this section in which he is showing his power and his authority. And now he says he has authority over the Sabbath. Okay? Giving lots of indication of who he really is. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 12, verse 9. And departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And why does he go there? From what I can tell, he has two primary purposes here. First of all, once again, he heals. He heals. And secondly, verse 12, when they criticize him for healing in this, on the Sabbath in the synagogue, verse 12, of much, how much more value then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Once again, showing that he is Lord of the Sabbath. That he has authority over the Sabbath. And so he has authority to heal on the Sabbath because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 15 follows verse 14. Interesting how that works. Verse 14 says, but the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. Then look what verse 15 says. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And so the next place he goes is to withdraw from there. And he does this, first of all, to avoid the Pharisees at this time. He's going to have confrontations with the Pharisees, but this isn't the right time for it. So he goes to avoid the Pharisees. And then he also, in verse 15, says, And the many followed him, and he healed them all. He's healing once again, showing his power over illness. And he then uh, also confronts some demons in this section and shows his power over demons again. Um, verses 18 and following shows that he fulfills prophecy, He's busy in this location, healing, showing his power over the demons, and fulfilling prophecy. And then he teaches some significant parables, some significant parables that also point to who he is. In particular, if you want to read them on your own, you want to pay particular attention to verses 38 to 42, uh, 43, in which he is demonstrating who he is and what's going to happen to him, and how those Old Testament stories actually point forward 
to him. And then in chapter 13, we jump all the way from chap to chapter 13 and verse 54. Chapter 13, verse 54, and coming to his hometown. So now he comes to his hometown, and it says, he began teaching them in the synagogue. And they become astonished and say, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is he not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? So he goes to his hometown and wows them with his teaching. And they're trying to figure out how he could have so much wisdom, uh, which is, uh, I won't say that. Um, and then what happens? They reject him. So he comes here to teach in his hometown, and they reject him. And this is spoken of by the Apostle John when he introduces Jesus in John 1.11. In the very beginning, when it talks about when he talks about Jesus and he's full of grace and truth, and he is the Word, the Word become flesh, and he is God. And what does he say in verse 11? He says, He came into his own, and his own rejected him. And so he is fulfilling what John said as well here. He's rejected by his own. So in chapter 14, in the first 12 verses, we see about the execution, the murder, if you will, of John the Baptist, the beheading of John the Baptist. And so chapter 14 and verse 13 says, now when Jesus heard it, heard what? He heard about the beheading of John the Baptist, who was not only close to him, but was related to him and was, by the way, by, his, by Jesus' account, the greatest man who ever lived, because he introduced Jesus. Uh, verse 13 says, Now when Jesus heard of it, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. He withdrew and went to this place to grieve over the death of John the Baptist but the people wouldn't leave him alone. So we have verse 14. And when he came out, well, the rest of 13 says, when the multitudes heard of this, they followed it on, him on foot from the cities. And when he came out, he saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. <clears throat> so uh, <clears throat> chapter 14, verse 14, he comes uh, out of the lonely place. He goes to the lonely place in verse 13. He comes out of the lonely place in verse 14 and feels compassion for the multitude. And this is going to become another theme for his travels. He feels compassion. He doesn't just heal because he has the power to do it. He feels compassion. He cares about people. And so several of his travels are designed to show us that about Jesus. He feels compassion. Even now when he's, he's, he wants to be by himself to grieve the death of John the Baptist, but he feels compassion. And so he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heal. Um, and then later in chapter 14, verse 23, and this possibly is still related to verse 13, in verse 23, after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. He goes up on the mountain to get some alone time to pray, to get some quiet time, as we would say, uh, to pray all by himself, away from the crowds, away from the multitude, leaving us an example to follow, that sometimes we need to get away from the multitude and spend time alone with God. Verse 25, just a couple of verses later, 
he comes to an interesting location. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Something I dare say, none, a place none of us has ever been. He comes to them walking on the sea. And here, he shows his power over nature. His power over nature. Amongst the other powers that he's been demonstrating in his travels. Then in verse 34, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And at Gennesaret, he shows again his power to heal. Um, when the men of that place, verse 35, recognized him, they sent into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were ill, and they began to entreat him that they might that they might not touch the fringe of his might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. Healing, power, so much power they just if they could touch his cloak, they were healed. As many as they could bring in from around the district. Then, in chapter 15, verse 21, Dr. MacArthur this morning talked about Jesus talking to a woman that he wasn't supposed to talk to, a Samaritan woman, right? Well, Jesus does the same here in chapter 15 and verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And then verse 22 says, And behold, a Canaanite woman came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Uh, and he meets this Canaanite woman of faith. Now, by the way, Dr. MacArthur didn't mention it this morning, but we should think about the fact that not only did he talk to a Samaritan woman, he talked to a Samaritan woman. And it was not the norm for men to talk to women that they didn't know, etc. Here he talks to a Canaanite woman. She's not just a Canaanite, but a woman. And um, has compassion on her as well. So he goes here to meet her. Then verse 29 of chapter 15, and departing from there... Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up to the mountain, he was sitting there. So in chapter 15, 29, he is, has gone to the mountain. He's gone here to be alone again, and again, the multitudes won't let him. And so he ends up doing healing and showing compassion healing, and showing compassion. Those themes that we have seen before as well. Now, we have, I have a little quiz for us here before we go to his next location. Um, can you name which of the 12 sons of Jacob was a Trump fan? Because Jesus, in Matthew 15 and verse 39, goes to Magadan. <laughs> Sorry to bring a little levity into our seriousness here, but people expect it. So He goes to Magadan. <laughs> in chapter 15, verse 39, says, In dismissing the multitudes, he got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. Here he goes for several purposes, primarily to, to scold the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, he's now turning away from avoiding the Pharisees to now confronting the Pharisees. Uh, in his travels, and along with them, the Sadducees thrown into the mix. And so he scolds them, and he also predicts his death and resurrection here. This begins another theme 
of what he does in the various locations. He begins to tell his disciples that he's going to die and he's going to be resurrected, which is why that morning they all understood exactly what happened and they were waiting to see him. Oh wait, they weren't because they were human beings like you and me and they were weak in their faith because he told them over and over again what was, exactly what was going to happen. And this was the first time that he tells them that he's going to die and be resurrected. All right, so let's move then to chapter 16 and verse 4. Uh, this is actually, I actually got the, uh, the, the uh, predicting his death and resurrection out of order. It actually sh should fit in this next one, but... Uh, Anyway, I didn't discover that till last night. It was too late to change the PowerPoint. So uh, he actually predicts that after this one, verse 4 in chapter 16. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. A sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. So what's he, where does he go now? He goes away. What's the significance? He's going away from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. My interpretation of this verse, I'm not rewriting the Bible, it's just the way I see it. I'm not claiming to be inspired. Um, my version of that second part of the verse is, I'm done with you. He's leaving the, the Pharisees. Uh, he's saying, for now, I'm done with you. I've, he scolds them and says, I'm out of here. Um, so there, he then, um, we go, he goes from there to verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, so he turns now to Caesarea Philippi, and here he reveals himself to his disciples. He reveals himself to his disciples. This is the section in which he asks, he asks them, who do men say that I am? And Peter says in verse 16, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirms that that is correct. That is who I am. He's telling them who he really is and what his ultimate mission is at this point. And that's when he then predicts his death and resurrection as well, is in this place. Then chapter 17 and verse 7. This is... Uh, the transfiguration, when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and is transfigured, and afterwards, then verse 7 says, and Jesus came to them. Who's them? Peter, James, and John. So his next trip is to Peter, James, and John. And why? Because verse 7, seven says, he touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid, because verse 6 says, They fell on their faces and were much afraid. So he goes to his disciples then, and he comforts them and gives them courage when they're afraid. Verse 24, chapter 17. And when they had come to Capernaum, so he's back to Capernaum, here, he gives a lesson concerning the importance of subjection. Now, most of you are not going to want to read this passage because he says on it, pay your taxes. <laughs> but the fundamental lesson is about subjection. Why should you pay your taxes? Um, and so, he gives this lesson concerning the importance of subjection. Then, our next trip is chapter 19 and verse 1. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So he comes to Judea beyond the Jordan. And here he heals once again and he confronts the Pharisees once again, and he teaches important information about salvation. Healing 
confronting the Pharisees and teaching. First, uh, chapter 20. That teaching goes on for a ways, chapter and a half. And so we go to chapter 20 and verse 29 before he moves again. Chapter 20, verse 29, as they were going out from Jericho. So he's gone beyond the Jordan, and now he's gone out from Jericho, which is there. And he heals, once again, the faithful. It says in verse 29, a great multitude followed him, and then two blind men, as he was passing by, cried out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And because they were faithful, he stops and he heals them. And verse 34 tells us, once again, he was moved with compassion when he touched their eyes. It's not just a thing. It's not a power show entirely. He's moved with compassion once again. Um, then from there, chapter 21, verse 1, And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. So the next movement is to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives. And why is that? Verse 4, now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. This is where he tells them to go find the donkey that is going to be waiting for them, that he's going to use to ride into Jerusalem. And this is also a fulfillment of prophecy. Okay, So that's what's going on in chapter 21, verse 1. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. The, the prophecy is verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted upon a donkey, even upon a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so he, that's what he does at Bethphage, is tell them this is where you'll find the donkey. All right, so that takes us to chapter 21 and verse 10. And when he had entered Jerusalem... So now we're coming to the final parts of his journeys. He has entered Jerusalem in chapter 21, verse 10. And he has a number of purposes for going to Jerusalem. One is to fulfill prophecy, which we see right away in verse 9, among others. Um, but also to teach. He's going to spend days teaching in Jerusalem and to lament over Jerusalem, to lament over Jerusalem because he knows that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because they have not accepted him. And he knows that AD 70 is coming the temple is going to be destroyed, and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And he laments. He is sad that Jerusalem did not accept him. And frankly, he comes there to die, as he had told the apostles all along that he was going to do. He comes there to die. Now, an interesting side note that isn't mentioned in Matthew, in Mark chapter 11, verse 19, we know that Jesus and the disciples left the city each night. Matthew doesn't tell us that. He just tells us he comes to Jerusalem, and then he teaches and teaches and teaches and does these various things, but Mark tells us that it was several days and that they left the city each night. But since it's in Mark, it's out of bounds, and we can't use it. Violates the rules. Chapter 21, verse 19, while he's there in Jerusalem, he comes to some other place. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it. So while he's there, he comes to a fig tree. 
he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. This is a symbolic act that he takes to symbolize judgment on Israel for their fruitlessness. The fig tree is, in the Old Testament is a symbol of Israel. And so he, if you will, curses the fig tree and it withers because it's fruitless and therefore purposeless. There's no reason for its existence. A fig tree exists to produce fruit. Israel existed to produce fruit, and they didn't do it. And so they're going to be judged. And so he symbolizes that by this little offshoot trip to the fig tree. Then chapter 21, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. In verse 23, And when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? So he comes to the temple twice here in chapter 12, once to clean God's house which, by the way, also fulfills prophecy. Verse 13 uh, gives us that prophecy. But he also co comes to confront the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now he doesn't wait for them to come to him. They've been following him around and, and confronting him. Now he goes to their ground. Their home, they have the home field advantage. He goes to their stadium, to the temple. And he confronts them in chapter 21. And this goes on for a couple of chapters till we get to chapter 24 and verse 1, in which then it says, And Jesus came out of the temple. So he went to the temple, now in chapter 24, verse 1, he comes out of the temple. And his disciples are pointing out the buildings of the temple and how impressive they are, and Jesus there prophesies the destruction of the temple in verse 2. And this leads to some significant teaching about the end times in chapter 24. Teaching about the end times. Then we move to chapter 26. Chapter 26 and verse 36, we see a recurrent theme here. When Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Here's another instance of Jesus now wanting to be alone and to pray. Now he also comes to Gethsemane for other reasons. He, comes to get, he goes to Gethsemane to be betrayed. He goes to Gethsemane to be arrested. But in, initially, he goes there to pray. And he invites the disciples to be a little ways away from him and to pray as well. And then in chapter 26, verse 29, no, 39, verse 39 it says, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. He goes a little beyond the disciples because he keeps finding them, what? Asleep. And he keeps going a little beyond. He, he's, he's struggling. He's praying 
to the Lord to let the cup pass from him, to not have to do what he has to do. We see that in verse 39. We see it again in verse 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And then verse 44, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. But notice he says, but not my will, but thy will be done. So he goes a little beyond them to be alone and to pray, to be excused from what he's going to have to do. And that leads us to verse 46 of chapter 26. And he says to the disciples, Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So, verse 46, he goes to Judas to be arrested and again to fulfill prophecy. Look at verse 56 of chapter 26. Jesus says, But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Where does he go next? Verse 57. And those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. So next he goes to Caiaphas for his mock trial. His mock trial. Here he goes. Look at verse 64. They're pressing him. Because he has so many times in his teachings claimed to be God. They got it. Uh, a lot of people today don't get it when they read the New Testament, but they got it. They tried to kill him multiple times. And in verse 64, after, uh, let's, let's, let's look at verse 63. Caiaphas said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And by the way, when it, you have said it, um, according to those who know Greek better than I do, it means definitely yes. So he's saying, yes, I am the Son of God. And you'll see me sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, and then the high priest tore his robes. What need do we have of witnesses? He has blasphemed. So, I want us to keep in mind the context here. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the religious leaders, and he's telling them, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God. Because his next trip is to a different kind of leader, and he tells him a different thing, that is, it's the same thing, but it sounds different. And by the way, um, once he tells them who he is, they have no excuse. They have no excuse. They're rejecting their Messiah. His next trip, chapter 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him. So this is Pilate. For mock trial part two, he gets two mock trials. The religious leaders give him a mock trial. Pilate gives him a mock trial. And by mock trial, I mean totally in violation of all the rules. It's not really a trial. And he's talking now to a political leader. So the political leader cares about this part, right? Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. So he gives a different answer, but it's the same answer. He is both the Messiah and he is the king of the Jews. To the religious leaders, he gives them the religious answer. I am the Messiah, the son of God. To the political leader, he says, I am the king of the Jews. He declares his deity to the religious leaders and declares his kingship to the political leader. From there, his next trip is in verse 27 of chapter 27. 
Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took his robe off and put his garments on him and led him away to crucify him. So he goes next to the praetorium to suffer physically and to suffer humiliation in fulfillment of Isaiah 52 and 53. And then verse 33. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, he moves next to Golgotha. Purpose there? To be the sacrifice for mankind. And so then he is the sacrifice. And we don't see him for a while, about three days. And then he's there again. And he goes, now we have to leave the book of Matthew. I, I warned you. We have to go to the book of John. In John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene visits the tomb, and then we have verse 14. And when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni. This is her automatic reaction to that voice. Which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to the, my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. So, he goes to Mary Magdalene at the tomb, and what, why? First of all, for comfort. Mary. Secondly, for proof of his resurrection. She sees the resurrection is real. He's really done it. And thirdly, he gives instruction for meeting up with the disciples. Then, sorry, we go back to Matthew 28. <laughs> By the way, this is Dr. MacArthur's fault because I used his order of what happened here, piecing the Gospels together. So... Um, Matthew chapter 28, verses 9 and 10. There are some women, and they are returning from the tomb. Verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. So there's women on the road from the tomb other than Mary Magdalene, and he comes and visits them to show re the reality of his resurrection. They hold on to his feet. They see he's real. He's not a ghost. It's not that they ate something bad for dinner and they're having visions. They see that he's real. Notice what else he does. 
He accepts worship. They worship him, and he doesn't say, don't, don't. He accepts worship. And then thirdly, again, arranges a meeting with the disciples, with these women as well. Now we go to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24. For our next place that he goes. Luke chapter 24, verse 15. It came about, there were some men, two men, verse 13, going to a village named Emmaus. So there's two men on the road to Emmaus. Verse 15, it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. And I'm not going to read through this whole section, but what is his purpose here? Look at verse 30. When it came about, he had reclined at table with them and took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to them. He, he eats with them. He talks with them, he teaches them, he eats with them, showing the reality of the resurrection. That he's physical. He eats. He breaks bread. And also to fulfill prophecy. Look at verses 26 and 27. He's teaching them, and he says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He shows them how he's fulfilled prophecy, how the scripture is pointed to him. Then we go, we get to stay for a moment in Luke to verse 36 of Luke 24. He goes next to the disciples' room. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. What does he do here? He shows them the reality of the resurrection. Once again, to the disciples now, that he's real that he's really been resurrected. He fulfills prophecy. In verse 44, he talks about that. And by the way, here, verses 42 and 43, he gave them a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their sight. Again, to show the reality that he's physical, he's real. And... There's a new thing added in verse 49. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. He gives them a promise. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Let's go back to the book of John. Back to John 20. This is another trip to the disciples' room. John 20, verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And then, verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. Proof of the resurrection. This is me resurrected, it's not some image. Here is the wounds. And verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit that was referred to in the other passage. 
Then we go to John chapter 21, verse 1, for the next place that he goes. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. He meets the disciples at the sea. And once again, he gives them the reality of the resurrection. Multiple ways. One, by doing a miracle that only he could do. And two, he says in verse 10, bring some of the fish which you've caught. And then he says in verse 12, come, let's have breakfast. He's real. He's physical. The reality of the resurrection. And then verses 15 to 17, he commissions Peter. Peter who needs to be commissioned. Why? There's that little thing of denying Jesus three times at the crucial moment. Is he disqualified? No. Jesus commissions him. Verses 15 to 17, to tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. He tells him three times. Three times. Interesting. He denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus three times tells him, tend my sheep and shepherd my sheep. Then we go back to Matthew, chapter 28. We're almost there, We're almost done. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. So he goes to this mountain in Galilee to accept worship once again. And to assert his authority. Verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth to assert his authority. And then the well-known part, verses 20 and 21, the Great Commission. To commission them all to preach the gospel and make disciples of the nations. So if I had told you this at the beginning, most of you would have left. I told you that I had 22 points, I think, the first week and 20-some points the second week. We just went through 49 points. But there's a 50th, and I didn't do it just to get to 50. I was all done, and I was, I was okay with 49. And then I realized I had to do a 50th, and we have to go to yet another book of the Bible, go to Acts. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. To these, that is the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, many convincing proofs, we've been seeing some of those, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. The reality of the resurrection. Forty days, he walks among them and says, here, see the wounds? Here, touch me. Here, give me some food, I'll eat. And then, verses 4 and 5. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
And then he leaves, but we can't mention that because that was in an earlier message on comings and goings. So where do we end up? Just flip back a page to John chapter 41, verses 24 and 25. Where John says, This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things. We know that his witness is true. And there are also... There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written, nor would Dr. Fraser be able to get through them in a message. But we got through 50. And hopefully it's refreshing to look at the life of Christ and to focus on why he was here and what he was doing while he was here, not just when he came and when he left, which are very important things, but what he was doing here. Father, we thank you that you came. We thank you for the incarnation, for your humility in becoming a human being, in coming for our benefit. And we thank you, Father, for your ministry here on earth and the lessons that it teaches us, and we pray that it will inspire us to do some of those same things ourselves. But most importantly, it will inspire us to worship you. Amen.